and friends, welcome one and all to Corbett Report Radio. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio on Republic Broadcasting, and I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And once again, as many of you might know, CorbettReport.com has been having some problems uh, in the last day or two with its servers, but uh, once again, uh, I'm trying to do my best to make sure that this doesn't happen again in the future, behind the scenes, and uh, seeing what I can do in terms of a server upgrade, etc., and once again, if anyone has any ideas about a great way to uh, to host CorbettReport.com other than your OVPS, I'm all ears. But on that note, uh, tonight is Friday night, so we're going to do our regular Friday night routine here on Corbett Report Radio, where we start to look into, well, various things that I've done in the past at CorbettReport.com, and we dip into that treasure trove of information to find what hidden goodies we can uncover and tonight, it strikes me that, uh, indeed, last Saturday was the 7th anniversary of 7-7, the uh, July 7th bombings that took place in London in 2005, in the London Underground and on one bus. And I'm sure that uh, the listeners out there who are familiar with my work or any of the other alternative media that you might hear, for example, on Republic Broadcasting, probably don't need to be told all of the uh, the various ways in which that was just another example of false flag terrorism. And part of the perpetuation of this phony Al-Qaeda boogeyman war on terror police state agenda that really kicked into full gear on 9-11. But, uh, but it is worth going over again and to remind ourselves the various pieces of that puzzle and why they just don't add up. So tonight we're going to be dipping into the archives for a few different pieces. Uh, in fact, one not by myself. So we're going to be listening to uh, a video that I did last year on CCTV. As you might remember, the CCTV footage of the 7-7 bombers is one of the the key and interesting pieces of the puzzle that, that really don't add up in terms of the 7-7 narrative, and uh, there is a lot to talk about with regards to that, so we'll listen to that report. We will also take a, a few minutes to listen to another uh, very interesting video by a guest who has been a frequent guest on Corbett Report called Tom Secker. He's at investigatingtheterror.com, and he just put out as a uh, 7th anniversary video a 7-7 in 7 minutes video. So we're going to be listening to the audio of that, and uh, once again, this video, or this broadcast is a video podcast as well, so you're able to download that after the fact from the Corbett Report servers at corbettreport.com, and you'll be able to watch these uh, video reports as well as just listen to them. And then finally, in the last segment, we're going to be, or in the next segment after that, we're going to be listening to an excerpt from an interview that I conducted with Tom Secker last year about his uh, most recent 7-7 documentary, and uh, and some of the the very interesting pieces, again, of that puzzle that he uh, he managed to put together in that documentary that I think is definitely worth highlighting and bringing to your attention. So we're going to be uh, delving into the 7-7 mystery, I suppose we can call it, uh, insofar as it's still presented to the public as an open and shut case. But the more you look into it, as with so many of these other acts of false flag terrorism, the more it falls apart at the seams. So, once again, we have to uh, continue hammering on these points, which we have hammered on before, but are still nonetheless relevant today, and in fact, perhaps even more so as the mechanized weaponry of the police state continues to roll out in the name of this uh, false flag terror boogeyman, and we see the Department of Homeland Security claiming more and more ability to interfere with citizens' everyday lives in increasingly worrying and militaristic ways, what with the 
releasing of the drones, etc., which, by the way, is the topic of the International Forecaster Newsletter editorial that I'm working on, and uh, which will be available in the International Forecaster tomorrow and also uh, for my newsletter subscribers at CorbettReport.com. More on that later, but right now let's get into the meat and potatoes of this broadcast. We're going to take a couple of minutes break, and when we come back, we're going to get straight into the content. Tonight, talking about 7-7, seven years later. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with the last word on CCTV. It wasn't long after the introduction of the television camera that those in positions of power began using it to track and surveil the public. The first closed-circuit television camera was deployed by Siemens AG, a company that sponsored, funded, and collaborated with the Nazi regime, so the Nazis could monitor rocket launches from the safety of a distant bunker. Within seven years, the first commercial CCTV cameras were available in the U.S., Advertisements for the systems were at pains to point out that they required no government permit to operate. That claim in itself is interesting. It's difficult for us in the age of pervasive surveillance technology to appreciate just how thoroughly these technologies have altered our sense of the public and private spheres. Today, Google can send street view vans around the streets of our cities, snapping up pictures and Wi-Fi data alike. Or the average person can share their most intimate details with social network friends who they've never even met. Now, with services like Google Latitude, you can even allow these friends to track the precise GPS coordinates of your cell phone in real time. But 60 years ago, would-be purchasers of CCTV cameras had to be reassured that they didn't need a special permit from the government to monitor their own property. The difference between the 1940s understanding of the value of privacy and our current blasé attitude toward electronic snooping is perhaps best illustrated by 1984. In this classic dystopic vision, Orwell lays bare the potential horrors of a total surveillance society. Every movement is tracked, and people are never out of sight of the all-seeing, all-hearing telescreens. When someone is acting out of line, the telescreen can even bark commands at them. Today's CCTV cameras are ubiquitous, with Londoners estimated to be caught on camera 300 times a day. CCTV cameras in England are now being equipped with loudspeakers so that antisocial behavior can be rebuked, in a child's voice. CCTV cameras are now routinely equipped with microphones and are admittedly used by law enforcement to listen in on conversations. IBM, another company whose German branch actively collaborated with the Nazis in World War II, is developing behavior monitoring cameras tied to AI computers that scan crowds for signs of terrorist behavior. Walmarts and other retailers across the U.S. are showing televised messages from the head of Homeland Security urging Americans to spy on their fellow shoppers. And now, the federal government is announcing it is ready to test technology that has been quietly installed in the back door of every broadcaster in the U.S., allowing the president to interrupt all radio and TV broadcasts at any time. 
In the 1940s, this was a nightmare vision of a totalitarian future. In 2011, it's our mundane reality. Of course, this tyranny, like every tyranny, has come cloaked in the mantle of security. The cameras, we are told, are there to keep us safe. They help solve crimes, say the mouthpieces of the technological control grid. When their presence is conspicuous, they say, they can even prevent crimes. Both claims are demonstrably false. A 2003 study in the Injury Prevention Journal concluded that there was no evidence that CCTV cameras have any effect whatsoever in deterring violent crimes. A 2007 report from Britain's own home office admitted that many CCTV cameras that had been installed to monitor crime had since been repositioned to serve solely as traffic cameras and record the license plates of passing cars. Data obtained from the British government under a Freedom of Information Act request in 2007 showed that of the five London boroughs with the highest concentration of CCTV cameras, four of them actually had a below-average rate of apprehending criminals whereas Sutton, one of the least CCTV-laden areas, had a well-above-average apprehension rate. A 2009 meta-analysis of 41 CCTV studies concluded that CCTV had no substantial impact on crime in the UK, despite the globally unprecedented £500 million that local city councils had sunk into the spy cameras in the previous decade. These and many other studies all point to the falsity of the claim that the CCTV cameras are there for our protection. Time after time, when the facts and figures are analyzed, they show the CCTV has almost no effect in preventing or solving crimes. In the face of this evidence, it becomes all the more perplexing that CCTV surveillance has not only not been abandoned and discredited as a failed technology, but that country after country is following the UK's Big Brother lead and deploying more and more CCTV cameras on the streets of their cities. This seeming paradox, like so many others, can be partially answered by the profit motive. Since the mid-1990s, UK CCTV surveillance has become a billion-dollar industry. If that success can be repeated in other markets, then the rich and well-connected stand to make a windfall from whipping the public into a crime-wave hysteria and then offering the cameras as their solution. But there is something more fundamentally troubling about this entire CCTV surveillance grid than mere hucksterism. It is the question of trust in the so-called authorities who are controlling, monitoring, and tracking the systems. Not just the trust in those currently in charge of the system, but in anyone who will ever control these systems, that they will never abuse this technology or use it for their own ends. The question of trust can be stated simply. What happens if the criminals are in charge of the cameras? On the morning of the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, there were at least a dozen CCTV cameras in the direct vicinity of the Alfred P. Murrah building that recorded the approach of the rider truck or captured it being parked in front of the building. A source involved in the investigation told the LA Times that two of the cameras showed the explosion itself and that two of them showed McVeigh exiting the truck. Yet this slam-dunk evidence, evidence that would, would have made the conviction of McVeigh an open and shut case, was never produced in court. It was never shown to a jury. To this day, no member of the public has ever been allowed to see this video. Instead, it and the other surveillance tapes from the area were confiscated and classified by the FBI in the name of national security. But why? According to the LA Times source, the footage also shows a second man emerging from the cab of the rider truck minutes after McVeigh walked away. 
This man, in a baseball cap with a flame design, answered to the description of John Doe number 2, the mysterious second suspect who has been identified by dozens of eyewitnesses, but who the FBI, after having released a composite sketch of him, now claims never existed. A Utah-based attorney named Jesse Trinidou finally managed to sue the government for some of the CCTV tapes from the area. He was ultimately able to secure 30 different surveillance tapes, four of which have had, would have had clear views of the Ryder truck's approach that morning. All four of those tapes go blank in the minutes leading up to the bombing, precisely as the truck was passing by. The official explanation? All of the tapes, every single one of them, were being changed at the precise moment that the truck was passing. The tapes of the explosion and of John Doe number 2 have still never been released. The tapes from the CCTV cameras on the Murrah building itself, cameras whose footage was being stored off-site and thus were not destroyed in the blast, have never been acknowledged to exist. The story of the CCTV footage in the London Underground on 7-7 is equally unbelievable. Just days after the bombing, Andy Trotter, the deputy chief constable of British Transport Police, bragged about the CCTV network in the underground, claiming that there would be an intense investigation to sort through the images and identify the bombers. As it turned out, the police didn't have much to look at after all. Of the 76 cameras at King's Cross that morning, 75 were malfunctioning during the 20-minute period, which was coincidentally the exact period when the four alleged bombers were passing through the station. Luckily for investigators, the one camera that was working in the Thames Link Tunnel managed to capture an image of the four accused walking two by two. We are told that this image is so startling that the police officer who first saw it immediately identified them as the bombers. Amazingly, this is the last image of three of the four men. There are no images of the supposed bombers buying their tickets for their supposed suicide bombing journey, no images of any of them boarding the trains, no images of them on the trains, despite the availability of CCTV from the trains. The movements of the alleged bus bomber, Hasib Hussein, are equally amazing. We are told that he entered a McDonald's to insert a fresh 9-volt battery into his explosives, but there is no footage of this. The manager turned off the shop's cameras just before Hussein entered. He is alleged to have taken a number 91 bus along the Euston Road, but there is no footage from the camera on the bus. The inspector in charge of the case can no longer even remember why the police were unable to find or use the footage from the bus's cameras. They are simply unavailable. He is alleged to have boarded the number 30 bus at Euston Station, the bus on which he is alleged to have activated his explosives, but there is no footage of this. The cameras on this bus were malfunctioning too, and hadn't recorded anything since the previous year. Again and again, we find that the surveillance system that is there to protect the public has an uncanny ability to break down just as it is most needed. And even if every one of these malfunction coincidences were actually coincidences, the lesson is still plain. If the criminals control the cameras, they can cover up their own crimes. The all-seeing eye of the surveillance state does not represent something of benefit to the public. Like any technology, the cameras themselves are neutral and can be used for good or bad. But if we sit idly by while the police state control grid is erected around us, we are ultimately putting into the hands of the authorities of this and every subsequent generation the responsibility of using these systems and trusting that they will never be abused. But if history has taught us anything, it is that an overarching central police authority is the last place we should put that trust. For the Corbett Report in Western Japan, I am James Corbett. 
the 7th of July 2005, four bombings in London killed 56 people and wounded several hundred. Three explosions took place on underground trains shortly before 9am. A fourth explosion destroyed a bus about an hour later. The media's reporting of the event was extremely confused, speaking of as many as eight explosions on the underground, which were initially blamed on electrical power surges. They also reported explosions on three different buses. This somehow evolved into a tale of four explosions caused by suicide bombers. On the evening of the attacks, the major media had already decided who was responsible. The bombings in London. This is why I thought the Brits should have let the French have the Olympics. Let somebody else be worried about guys with backpack bombs for a while. Weeks, months, and even years later, the most basic details of what happened are unclear. A mess of contradiction, misreporting, and conjecture. We have been told that the four alleged bombers acted alone, but also that there were others that knew what was going to happen. Search is not over. I firmly believe that there are other people who have knowledge of what lay behind the attacks in July 2005. Knowledge that they have not shared with us. In fact, I don't only believe it, I know it for a fact. The official inquiries by the Intelligence and Security Committee, or ISC, have been a farce. During their first inquiry, they were not shown photos and video surveillance footage of the alleged bombers taken before 7-7. During the second inquiry, MI5 gave an inaccurate timeline of what they knew and when. The fact is that MI5 knew a lot more about the alleged bombers than they told the ISC. The ISC concludes that MI5 and the police cannot be criticised for the actions and decisions they took in 2004 and 5, even if there were, with hindsight, quote, missed opportunities. The victims' families say the reports are whitewashed. Some sensitive material is censored. The breakdown of communication between MI5 and the police is not properly dealt with. And the claim that the Saudis warned the UK in advance of 7-7 is completely redacted. These missed opportunities had the effect of concealing the relationships between the alleged bombers and several other significant people. The likelihood is that some of these other men were agents or assets of the security services. I mean, they definitely wanted hardness training, some sort of, with a military bent to it, pushing people to the limits, making them work really hard, making them suffer. Basically, those are his words, he wanted them to suffer. I wondered if it was about converting people to Islam, if they had a different agenda completely, taking vulnerable young men, exposing them to literature, to extremist views, testing them, see how far they were prepared to go, and then grooming them. The most basic questions have not yet been answered. What caused the explosions? Who carried them out and how? Why did these terrorists attack the British public? Why has the government been so resistant to releasing the evidence that could prove whether their story is true? What are they hiding? The purpose of terrorism is just that. It is to terrorise people. 
Atrocities such as these simply reinforce our sense of community. Despite the diligent efforts of independent researchers and campaigners, we may never get the answers to these questions. J7 freedom of information requests have been blocked or delayed, and successive governments have refused to reopen the police investigation or hold an independent inquiry. But the only way we can get answers is to press for further investigation and inquiry, and to do it ourselves. The 77 inquests did not even answer the questions that they were legally obliged to answer, let alone those submitted by July 7th truth campaigners. Even after the July 7th inquests into the deaths of the 52 victims, many of the families of the victims feel that their questions have been avoided and ignored. The evidence that we've got today in this report, I think, really causes a lot more questions to be asked than it answers. They've had five years to prepare for this. They must have known that something like this was going to happen. They had five years to look at their documentation, get it in order, and produce it when, when required. Um, and it appears to me that they stalled on it. I wasn't happy with the performance of the security service. The security services don't want to have any blame. They don't want to say if they made an apology, it meant that they were guilty of something. And if they're guilty of something, it meant that somebody is to blame. And nobody wants to be blamed. So 77 is to be forgotten. For others, to continue fighting for the truth is too painful. I mean, everybody's got issues with various areas. I think there are people with issues with the intelligence services. There are people with issues with emergency services. Um, my own particular issue with Transport for London. So I think there are still issues. The problem we have, and no, the problem I have, is that if I continue to hold concerns about issues that went on, my life will become very bitter. So do what you can to spread information, to investigate 7-7, and to ask these questions of the people that should have the answers, but have so far refused to give them. Uh, this week, we're excited to have on the line with us Tom Secker, the documentary filmmaker behind the highly popular 7-7 documentary, 7-7 Seeds of Destruction, and the newly released 7-7 documentary, 7-7 Crime and Prejudice, which is available on Global Research TV at grtv.ca. So, uh, Tom Secker, it's always great to talk with you. Thank you so much for coming on with us today. Yeah, good to talk to you again, James. Looking forward to it. Yeah, well, so am I. Um, as I'm sure people who have seen some of your uh, work before or seen interviews with you, you're you're quite a, a well-researched person, and you bring a lot of, uh, I think, solid facts to a, a topic that sometimes does stray into rather speculative areas, and I think that's a, a breath of fresh air, and it's good to see that such a, a well-documented piece of work coming out. So um, so I'm quite excited about, about the documentary itself and talking about uh, the different aspects that you raise in it, but um, to start out, 
I guess on a on something of a, a devil's advocate type uh, footing or, or something like that. I, I'd like to start with this kind of justify your existence uh, question. Um, it, it, it seems seven seven is a is a uh, area that's been well explored by by many different documentaries so far, and um, uh, I, I guess just in the last couple of years since your your first seven seven documentary Seeds of Deconstruction came out, I guess the question is what what really has changed or what new information do you have to justify a, an entirely new feature length documentary on the subject? Well, I mean, the, the most of the new information came from the 7-7 inquests that took place from uh, October last year to, ooh, they finished in May this year, I think, the final uh, conclusion was given. And I'd always intended, if the first film went down well, if it was well-received, if, if, you know, people appreciated what it was that I was trying to accomplish with it, I'd always intended to do a follow-up film. Um, either a sort of remake or, or adjustment, re-edit of the original one. But, I mean, following the 7-7 the inquests, and in particular following the uh, July 7th Truth Campaign's inquests blog, I thought, you know, there's, there's abundant new questions that have been posed by this. There's a lot of new evidence. I mean, we probably have more evidence, new evidence now, than we did in September of last year before the inquest started. There is thousands of pages of testimony. There are hundreds and hundreds of pages of exhibits um and i thought there's certainly enough in here for a new film it's also that there were other aspects to the whole 7-7 issue um that i didn't really cover in the first film the first film looked at the history of black ops and looked at the home office narrative of what happened on 7-7 and basically asked the question given all the problems with this narrative is it possible that 7-7 was another one of these kinds of black ops? Um, whereas in this one, I focused slightly less on the, the home office narrative and slightly more on the police investigation, because that's, in many respects, even more important. Um, there's a lot of talk in, in the 7-7 the movement about the need for a public inquiry, and I, I certainly support an a independent public inquiry. If we could ever get one, it would be a great thing to have. But there is another option here, and that is to try and get the police investigation reopened so that they could start looking at some of the fresh evidence. And again, not that likely to happen, but there are historical precedents. There are reasons to be optimistic that that could actually be a realistic goal. So I thought... In this follow-up film, I would look at some of the other things to do with, say, Northern Ireland and what have you that also provide context to all of this, but also look specifically at the police investigation, the new evidence from the inquests, and, and, and see where I could come to with all of it and see if, you know, once again I, I could try and raise some interest in this and try and get people thinking about it. That's right, and, and the documentary does raise a, a lot of interesting questions that, that I haven't really um, delved deeply into before, so I was quite thankful for that. And I think just as in Seeds of Deconstruction, I think one of the interesting aspects that really caught my attention the first time I viewed that was the uh, the fact that even which trains and traveling in which directions uh, had been affected by these these blasts um, was not exactly uh, nailed down even in the official version of events. I thought what was interesting in this... Well, I, I thought what was interesting in 7-7 Crime and Prejudice was that uh, even the, uh, the the diagrams and schematics that, that eventually came out about what uh, where the bombs took place in each uh, train carriage and, and where people were standing, there's, there's massive discrepancies between that and the various witnesses and, and things like that. Perhaps you can talk about some of those discrepancies, because it seems that, again, the... Uh, the uh, the 7-7 the inquest actually raised more questions than it answered in many respects. 
Oh, I mean, it's, it certainly raised more questions than it answered. It didn't even answer the fundamental questions it was supposed to be answering, the, the questions it is obliged by law to be answering. I mean, that was supposed to be the whole purpose of holding the inquests, but they seem to have forgotten all about that almost from day one and just used it as a massive propaganda exercise. Um, particularly the issue of where the bombs were in the carriages... Uh, one of the reasons I focused on this, and one of the reasons why that's something that in the inquests I was particularly keen to see, was there has been this uh, this theory, if you like, that um, the bombs weren't inside backpacks, they weren't carried onto the trains, they weren't left in bags on the trains or anything like that, but were somehow uh, built into them, built into the floor or strapped underneath the trains or whatever. And... Now, we don't have any particularly solid physical evidence of this, but certainly the predominance of eyewitness statements are more consistent with that than with an explosion inside the train and bursting out. So when the, uh, the Metropolitan Police uh, entered a series of diagrams in, uh, into the, the evidence at the inquests, um, and these detailed things like where each individual passenger was supposed to have been standing or sitting at the point of the explosion, where the bodies then ended up after the explosion, and, uh, you know, how the recovery process came to find these people. That is what's supposed to be explained in these diagrams. But there's huge contradictions between those, the Metropolitan Police official story, if you like, and what the Home Office narrative says. Um, let's take Oldgate, the, uh, the train going from Liverpool Street to Oldgate Station. There's a lot of other problems with that but let's assume for the sake of argument there was one explosion on that train it's supposed to have taken place by Shazad Tanweer using a backpack bomb sat down at the rear of the train uh, that's what the home office narrative says now at the inquests they did have a witness who uh, called Michael Henning who was in the next carriage along from where the explosion happened and he said he saw a man sitting in roughly the seat where the, the Home Office narrative says Tanweer was. But the problem is his description doesn't fit Tanweer. He admits he couldn't identify the man positively. He just was sort of aware of someone being in that location. And the other major problem is that according to the Metropolitan Police, it didn't. the explosion didn't take place, as you would expect, in the sort of floor in front of that seat, but in fact around the corner in the standing area. And that's where all of the people who died were apparently also standing. So you have a, um, a distance of only several feet, maybe, but nonetheless, it's a big enough difference that you have to wonder, why is it that the Home Office narrative has Tanweer placed in a seat where he clearly couldn't have been sitting if he set off that bomb? There is also the issue that the man who was actually sat in that seat, who Michael Henning apparently saw, was a guy called uh, William Walsh. And William Walsh suffered relatively minor injuries in this explosion, even though he was supposed to only be a few feet away from it. Um, you also have another witness from the next carriage along, a woman called Elizabeth Kenworthy, who, whose interviews and statements I've featured in both of my films, because I consider her, her a reliable witness. I mean, she was an off-duty police officer. She is someone who is trained in retention of information. She is trained in observation. You would think her statement of all of these peoples would probably be among the more accurate. Um, now, her, her testimony and her diagrams that she... Uh, drew of what she found when she entered this carriage after the explosion shows 
you know, large damage to the floor in front of that seat where William Walsh was, but also large damage around the corner in the standing area where Tanweer supposedly was. And, furthermore, it shows another hole on the other side of the carriage, further up the carriage, some, I don't know, maybe 25 feet away, 20 feet away, something like that. So it's very difficult to see how one single explosion of a small device in a backpack put on the floor could cause a crater in the in the floor there, sort of rip the floor up several feet away and blast another hole in the other side of the carriage 20 feet away. I mean, the the implication of this is, is presumably that there were more devices or that the devices hit those trains in some other way. And, of course, that would mean that those four men weren't responsible because they didn't, you know, if those weren't backpack explosions, then those guys didn't cause it by carrying backpacks onto them. And you get the same kind of issue at... Uh, on the, the Piccadilly line explosion between King's Cross and Russell Square. They they say that the explosion took place in, in the standing area. That's what the, na- the narrative says. And fair enough, the, the police diagram does show an explosion in the standing area. But one of the main problems is um, a man, I think he was the duty station manager at Russell Square, who entered the train sometime after the explosion. He draws another crater several feet away between rows of seats, and also where they found Jermaine Lindsay's ID, his, you know, wet letters and driving licence and whatever, and also where they apparently found his body, is some, I don't know, 15, 20 feet away. There's an entire row of seats in between the standing area where the explosion is supposed to have happened and where they found the effects and his body... That, and, and from that, they draw the conclusion that he caused the explosion. Now, of and, course, and and and, and, and am I to understand correctly? Because it s- sounded like from the narration in your <coughs> documentary that the uh, the Jermaine Lindsay's personal effects were were somehow separate from his body. So, it, because you, you mm. posit that he he sort of deposited the, the the things on the ground and moved over and planted the backpack and then sub- ended up uh, on the floor next to his personal items. So so were they physically removed from his pockets? Well, what they were suggesting, they had um, an explosives expert, a man called Dr. Clifford Todd, who has appeared in many various instances of this story about 7-7. They had him testifying at the inquests, and he's from, um, I think he's from Port and Down. He's, you know, government explosives expert, basically. And he he described how the items that they found, that uh, the identifying items for Lindsay, showed no sign of explosion damage. And so he postulated that they had been deliberately separated, that i.e. they had sort of got onto the trains, scattered the items on the floor, and then wandered off some distance before setting off the bomb, which doesn't make a huge amount of sense for, for various reasons. I mean, for one thing, these men are supposed to be Islamic suicide bombers. They are supposed to not be caring about their identity in this world because they are em- embracing the, you know, the afterlife, and, and and they're becoming martyrs to whatever cause it is they're supposed to have believed in. So why would they be so desperate to make sure that they were identified quickly after the bombs have gone off? And in particular, on the Piccadilly line one, you would have Jermaine Lindsay having to muscle his way past 20 or 30 people who are standing or sitting in the areas where he must have, bit, have moved through for this story to have made sense, and none of them remember seeing him. Now, is it really plausible, stood on a crowded tube train, that someone's going to push their way past you, having just chucked their wallet and whatever on the floor, pushed their way past you, shoved their way into the middle of the carriage, gone down onto the floor, taken their rucksack off, blown themselves up, and no one sees any of this? No one remembers any of this? Um, it, It doesn't add up. It simply doesn't add up. 
And it's the same kind of thing with the with the Edgware Road bombing, but even more so, because there, the it seems that this this explosion or explosions, whatever happened there, didn't just blow one hole in the floor of the carriage, but blew as many as five, six, maybe seven holes in in the floor of this carriage. And we're talking from almost from one end of the carriage to the other. They were so spread out. And again, I cannot cannot for the life of me see how one explosion in a rucksack is going to destroy almost the entire floor of a tube carriage. It just, it, it doesn't make sense. So again, the implication is those explo- explosions were caused by some other means than a rucksack-bearing suicide bomber. Indeed. Well, uh, another, I think, key part of the investigation that your your documentary explores is the idea that there was a wider conspiracy than just the four people, which a lot of the evidence um, seems to point to, and uh, which, unfortunately, the inquest ruled against uh, qu- quite uh, quite out of hand, I think. So so perhaps you can go through some of the, uh, the evidence that seems to su- suggest that there was more than simply the four people who have been accused of the, the crime. Well, I mean, you have the, these four alleged bombers. Uh, three of them are supposed to have lef- left Leeds on the morning of 7-7 at about 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. They uh, stopped by, according to the Home Office narrative, they stop by their bomb factory, they pick up their rucksacks and their various bomb-making equipment and, and shove them into the back of a car, drive down to Luton Station where they meet up with the fourth man and then catch a train to London and from there supposedly carry out these bombings. Okay. The thing is, at each individual point on this journey, Leeds, Luton Station, and King's Cross in London, you have witnesses who apparently identified these men, but saw them with other people at the same time. So up in Leeds, you have this uh, uh, older woman called um, Sylvia War, who uh, lived in Alexandra Grove, which is the area, the street where this this bomb factory supposedly was. And she described how she was woken up on the morning of 7-7 at, whatever, 4 o'clock in the morning. She looks out the window and she sees a, a group of Asian guys putting rucksacks into the back of a car. Um, the problem is, she says that there were as many as five or six men when there should have only been three. There should just be Mohammed Sadiq Khan, Shazad Tanwir, Haseeb Hussain. Yet she says there were two cars that drove off, and she says that there were, I think, four men in one car and two men in the other. So from where, you know, where did these other three people come from, and who were they, and what role were they playing in this? Obviously there are several different possibilities. They may have been co-conspirators, they may have been, you know, terrorist masterminds or something, or they may have been handlers, they may have been people to who were there to make sure that this went down, to make sure that those guys turned up that morning and picked up something from that flat so that they could then be linked to it and they could call it a bomb factory and construct this story that probably isn't true. Um, I don't know, obviously, which of those possibilities it is, but both of those are very much open at this point. So, they drive down the M1, they reach Luton Station, they park up in Luton Station, meet up with Jermaine Lindsay, um... And then they supposedly assemble their bombs from their various bomb-making equipment in the back of in the boot of this Nissan Micra, which in itself is an absurd notion. I mean, why on earth would anyone who was planning a suicide bombing put together their bombs in a train station car park in front of everyone, in front of CCTV cameras, where at any point someone could come and arrest them and stop them? It doesn't add up again. But 
one of the people who uh, was in Luton Station car park at the same time was a woman called uh, Sue Clark, who arrived at about 7.15 to see these guys huddled around the boot of this car and obviously up to something. Um, and again, the problem is, when she first spoke to the police, uh, I think it was four or five days after 7-7, she said that there was, again, more than four men, as many as five or six, that there were at least four in the uh, Nissan Micra, when there should have only been three, and there were at least two in the Fiat Bravo, when there should have been only one. So, were these the same men as who were seen in Leeds? Were they others? Were they ever traced? You know, this is the sort of thing that I, um, I mean, that... This isn't just about the Home Office narrative, it's about the plausibility of the police investigation. Why is it that those extra men were never traced? So once again, thank you so much for tuning in for tonight's broadcast. I hope you found that information interesting, useful, thought-provoking, and hopefully uh, interesting enough that you'll want to spread it to others. And as always, please do so. That's what this information is for. So the links to all of those reports will be available in the show notes for tonight's episode. That's always at corporatereport.com slash radio assuming the servers are up. <laughs> so once again, uh, the, you can find all of the information there. You can also find the video of this broadcast so that you can uh, pass that along to others. And uh, wh- whenever uh, you want to access my videos, even if the servers at CorbettReport.com are down, you can do so at blip.tv slash CorbettReport. That's the place to go for the videos, really. Uh, YouTube is a place where I'm uploading video reports as I'm able, but uh, but ultimately not the, the not these radio broadcasts, not my podcast, etc. For the long reports, you're going to have to go to blip.tv because YouTube, well, let's just face it, it's a terrible platform. It doesn't like me and I don't like it, so, uh, so the feeling's mutual there. But of course, this information is also all brought to you by yourselves out there. So for all of you who are subscribed to The Corbett Report, and who are receiving the weekly newsletter, give yourselves a big pat on the back for making this work possible. For those who aren't yet subscribed, I uh, I can't imagine why you wouldn't do so. It is definitely worth doing, uh, in my opinion anyway, if only for the e-newsletter itself. Once again, comes out on a weekly basis, and it includes my editorial for the International Forecaster on different topics each week. This week we're going to be talking about the drones and the growing drone presence in the lives of everyday Americans and increasingly people around the world, and unfortunately in quite uh, grisly ways if you happen to live in Pakistan or Yemen or some of the other places where the United States uh, government, and specifically Barack Obama, has given himself the power to decide who lives and dies, and and now they have the, uh, the new naming system, so if you'd happen to die in an American predator drone strike, it means that you were a militant by definition, simply for being of a certain age and being in the presence of their bombs. 
So an incredibly horrible state of affairs that I go over in this week's editorial. And once again, on a once a month basis, there's a subscriber only video. So once again, I think it's a good, uh, good value for people out there who want to subscribe. And one of the cheapest subscription deals that I know of in the alternative media whatsoever, 100 Japanese yen a month. That's a little over $1 a month, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 American dollars a year. So it's uh, not, hopefully not a lot of money to, to ask for. And it certainly, I try to make it as value packed as possible for people. So once again, if you're not subscribed, corporatereport.com slash support is the place to go. And there you can also buy the DVDs, which include all of the material that I've put together over the years and uh, more DVDs coming out uh, later on this year. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, that's it for this week's broadcast of Corbett Report Radio. So once again, thank you for tuning in. And uh, once again, I'm looking forward to doing all this with you again next week. Same time, same channel. So until then, thank you all for listening. Take care. Take care.